Today we cover Romans 14, verses 1 through 9. If you've not read those verses, please do so. The focus of my message will be on verses 7 through 9 of that part of the chapter. And as of right now, this will be my concluding message in studies through the book of Romans. Paul writes, For none of us lives to himself, and none of us dies to himself. For if we live, we live to the Lord. And if we die, we die to the Lord. And so then, whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. For to this end Christ died and lived again, that he might be Lord, both of the dead and of the living. There ends that portion of the reading of God's infallible and inerrant word. So, as I have said, I'm going to focus on those verses only. Paul speaks of other matters in the earlier part of the chapter. However, the emphasis that I want you to consider that he puts in the last section of those verses is the total lordship of Christ Jesus. Charles Hodge, the great Princeton theologian and scholar of previous era, wrote these words. The Greek word for Lord is used in Scripture in the sense of master, and as a mere honorary title, as, say, in the English term sir, like Sir Lancelot. But on the other hand, he continues, it is the translation of Adonai, the supreme Lord, and incommunicable name of God. It's the substitute for Jehovah, the name the Jews would not pronounce. He continues, it is in this sense that Christ is the Lord Lord of lords and Lord God. Lord in that sense, he says, in which God alone can be Lord, having a dominion of which divine perfection is the only adequate or possible foundation. This is the reason why no one can call him Lord but by the Holy Spirit. It is a confession that implies the apprehension of the glory of God as it shines in and through him. It is an acknowledgement, he writes, that he is God manifest in the flesh. And he concludes, Blessed are all those who make this acknowledgement with sincerity, for flesh and blood cannot reveal the truth therein confessed, but only the Father who is in heaven. End of quote. So this morning, with that background, I want us to consider four ways that Jesus claims total lordship over our lives. Here is the first. He claims total lordship of our hearts. Now, unless and until we bow to the Lord Jesus Christ as our King and Savior on an individual basis, we will not honor him as Lord of our families, of our churches, of our finances, or of our jobs or anything else. How can Christ be Lord on a personal level? How is he Lord on that level? Well, it begins with our hearts. You know, we're studying First Peter in our Sunday school class, and we haven't come to this chapter yet, but Bill will eventually come there. And in First Peter 3.15, we read, But in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason, for the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect. In your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy, Peter says. So there are here three signs or evidences that Jesus is the Lord of our hearts. First of all, we will gladly bear witness to others regarding the hope that we have through him. But then secondly, 
we will demonstrate our love for him. In Luke 10, 27, Jesus says, you shall love the Lord your God with what? All your heart and with all your soul and your strength and your mind and your neighbor as yourself. So we demonstrate our love for him by loving him with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength. And then thirdly, we will think in terms of his word. We will be guided by his law. Paul writing to the Thessalonians in 2 Thessalonians 3.5 says, May your hearts be guided in the love of God and the patience of Christ. So the total lordship begins with lordship of our hearts. But then secondly... He is Lord of our flesh or our bodies. Our bodies and fleshly desires must be controlled by his spirit and thereby obey his law. Paul, writing to the church at Corinth, says this in 1 Corinthians 6, 12 to 20. Now, this is a bit of a lengthy passage, but I think we need to listen to it very carefully. So either turn and follow along or please listen carefully as Paul writes 1 Corinthians 6, 12 to 20. I'm reading from the ESV. All things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be dominated by anything. Food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food. And God will destroy both one and the other. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. And God raised the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two will become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. So writes Paul in 1 Corinthians 6. We acknowledge Christ as Lord of our flesh as we struggle, as we battle and fight to keep it under control. In another chapter in that same letter to the church at Corinth, He wrote this in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, and I'm reading from a slightly paraphrased translation here. He says, don't you know that all the runners in the stadium run, but only one gets the prize? So run to win. Everyone who competes practices self-discipline in everything. The runners do this to get a crown of leaves that shrivel up and die, but we do it to receive a crown that never dies. So now, this is how I run. Not without a clear goal in sight. I fight like a boxer in the ring, not like someone who is shadow boxing. Rather, I'm landing punches on my own body and subduing it like a slave. I do this to be sure that I myself won't be disqualified after preaching to others. 1 Corinthians 9, 24 to 27. So as the Lordship of Christ is a reality, reality over our flesh, we will reckon our flesh as dead to sin. In Colossians 3, 5, Paul says, That is why you must kill everything in you that is earthly. Sexual vice, impurity, uncontrolled passion, evil desires, and especially greed, which is the same thing as worshiping a false god. Now, you know, friends, another way of considering this is that the total lordship of Christ over our flesh means 
that our bodies are sanctified to him. In 1 Thessalonians 4, 3 to 5, reading from the Christian Standard Bible this time, Paul says, For this is God's will, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality, so that each of you knows how to control his own body in sanctification and honor, not with lustful desires like the Gentiles who don't know God. So the total lordship of Christ, our King, means that in our flesh, our bodies, we are totally yielded to him, and in that way, we become useful to him. How? In the building up of his kingdom in this world. And friends, that is our primary mission and goal. One reason I think that we see so much pervasive evil and decadence today is that Satan's followers are totally yielded to him and the building up of his kingdom. And they are so in spirit and in body. You know, we, we've talked about this before, but we are living with the consequences of centuries of failed, reformed, and evangelical thinking on this, that your primary goal is to just get your soul saved and go to heaven and leave this awful, evil world. Not according to the message of the kingdom, the message of Jesus. Our goal is the building up of his kingdom in this world as we are totally yielded to his total lordship. But that leads me into the next point, the third point. And that is the total lordship of Christ over our minds. There is a description of this in Mark chapter 8, where Jesus rebukes Peter for failing to do this very thing. Let me read it to you. Mark chapter 8, beginning at verse 31. Then Jesus began to teach his disciples... And it quotes Jesus, the Christ must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, chief priests, and the legal experts and be killed. And then after three days, rise from the dead. He said this plainly. But Peter took hold of Jesus, scolding him, began to correct him. And what did Jesus do? Mark eight thirty three. He turned and he looked at his disciples, then sternly corrected Peter. Get behind me, Satan. You are not thinking God's thoughts, but human thoughts. So when we are thinking God's thoughts, our thoughts are set on him. Paul wrote in Romans 8, 5 to 7, For those who are according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who are according to the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. For the mind set on the flesh is death, but the mind set on the Spirit is life and peace. Because the mind set on the flesh is hostile toward God, for it does not subject itself to the law of God, for it is not even able to do so. And then in Colossians 3.2, Paul said, Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on the earth. So then, the total lordship of Christ over our minds will show that we love him by reading and knowing and obeying his law word. Now, to, to maybe back up just a few minutes to something I said a moment ago about the failed evangelicalism and the failed American Baptist culture of our times, I'm always amazed when some of our evangelical friends find a statement like what I just said is totally odd or even wrong, that we show our love to the Lord by reading and knowing and obeying His Word, His law. I mean, isn't that works righteousness they, they bellow out? No, no, it isn't, because of what the Lord himself said so many, many times. John fourteen fifteen, Jesus said, If you love me, 
You will keep, you will obey my commandments. Maybe these folks don't even have the Gospel of John in their Bibles. You know, I've been convinced over the decades of the central significance and importance of the Gospel according to John. You know, we, uh, we studied that Gospel about five years ago now, and I'm thinking, seriously, we need to go back through it. And that may be where I go next. I'm not sure I'm seeking the Lord's guidance on that. But also in John 15, verse 10, Jesus says, If you keep, that is, obey my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments, and abide in his love. So then, the total lordship of Christ the King is over our hearts, over our flesh, over our minds, and then finally, total lordship over our will. One of the most remarkable passages in the scriptures is where the Apostle Paul writes of his own very personal and intimate struggle with this matter. Now I'm going to read this. It was actually earlier in Romans chapter 7, verses 15 to 25. I'm going to read this from an admittedly paraphrased translation. Now I'm doing that not because I think the more literal, formal equivalent translations like the King James, New King James, ESV, New American Standard, those are fine. And of course that's what we use primarily here. But once we understand the literal translation, sometimes we need something that's more interpretive to help us understand the meaning. And I think this does a pretty good job because regardless of how you study this passage, it's sometimes kind of hard to get a hold of what Paul's saying. I think this translation does a good job. Paul says, I don't really understand myself, for I want to do what is right, but I don't do it. Instead, I do what I hate. But if I know what I'm doing is wrong, this shows that I agree that the law is good. So, I'm not the one doing wrong. It is the sin living in me that does it. And I know that nothing good lives in me, that is, in my sinful nature. I want to do what is right, but I can't. I want to do what is good, but I don't. I don't want to do what is wrong, but I do it anyway. But if I do what I don't want to do, I'm not really the one doing wrong. It's the sin living in me that does it. I have discovered This principle of life, he says, that when I want to do what is right, I inevitably do what is wrong. I love God's law with all my heart. But there's another power within me, Paul says, that is at war with my mind, and this power makes me a slave to sin that is still within me. Oh, what a miserable person I am. Who will free me from this life that is dominated by sin and death? And then he ends on this powerful note. Thank God the answer is in Jesus Christ our Lord. One pastor I know of commented on Paul's words here by saying this, and I quote him. From the time of our first saving acceptance of Christ, he is our king and Lord and savior and priest and prophet and counselor. And then begins a life of faltering and growing yieldedness to Christ in all that he is. This can come in the form of crises, or in the form of gradually growing commitment, or in the form of daily surrenderings. The Lordship of Christ in reality is something that is not discovered and yielded to once, but a thousand times. It is yieldedness to His Lordship that is at stake every time we are tempted to sin every day. I think that's 
an excellent observation, and I think that last statement in particular is worth hearing again. It is yieldedness to his lordship that is at stake every time we are tempted to sin and every day. He concludes all saved people own Jesus as their lord of their lives, but live out that submission in greater or lesser degrees of consistency. End of quote. So this means that the total lordship of Christ is further shown in our desire to have him first in our lives. And that means that our orientation, our direction in life is to follow him. In Matthew 16, 24 to 26, then Jesus said to his disciples, if anyone wishes to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life shall lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake shall find it. For what will a man be profited if he gains the whole world and forfeits or loses his soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? I heard about a young man who uh, was a graduating senior in high school and was facing a decision about what he was going to do next. He wondered whether he should serve the Lord in some capacity, a ministry or other, or he could go out and make a, a fortune by using his, his talents in, in the secular world. He said, I, I ought to let God have his way, but, but I can't seem to, to be yielded to his will. Well, his mother, who was a godly woman, realized the struggle her son was going through. And so in order to help him, she took some construction paper. I guess people still use that. I don't know. She cut out some letters in a construction, from the construction paper, and she made up a motto, a little slogan. And she penned it to his bedroom door. And that slogan said, let God. And the boy looked at that slogan, that motto, again and again and again. But that deep inner struggle continued in his heart. And finally, he decided, I got to get out of here. I got to go take a walk and, and clear my mind. And he was so frustrated upon leaving his bedroom, he slammed the door behind him saying, my own desires are, are just too strong to deal with this. So he went out for his walk, and when he came back, he found that as he had slammed his bedroom door, the letter D in the word God had fallen off the door onto the floor, and he was stunned to see on the door it said, let go. Okay, now, you know, we may want to, and I certainly would, want to dispute the underlying theological assumptions in that story. But I think it makes a very good point. We are not robots, friends. We do have will and desire. And whether we like it, or as the Arminians would mistakenly say, allow, the fact is, Christ is Lord, totally. He is Lord over all things, including yours and my life. So for us, the questions are, do we love him? Do we obey and serve him? Do we think his thoughts after him? In other words, do we fully own the total lordship of Christ, our king? May God enable us by his spirit to do so. Let us pray.